Today on Against the Grain. One of conservation's greatest achievements happened mostly by accident and is still hiding in plain sight for most of us. When settlers established cities in the United States, they decimated the existing ecosystems. But in recent decades, as Peter Alagona illustrates, there has been a remarkable return of wildlife to urban areas across the country. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. We don't tend to think of cities as habitats for wildlife. Yet 14 out of the 50 largest American cities are located in areas of very high biological diversity. After several centuries of decline in animal populations, wildlife has made a comeback in urbanized areas. Peter Alagona, professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Barbara, traces the fall and rise of urban and suburban wildlife in the accidental ecosystem, people and wildlife in American cities. Pete, you start the book contrasting the historical biodiversity of Yellowstone National Park and what became New York City. Can you describe both for us? This is a comparison that I made simply to provide some kind of current reference point for people to be able to think about how rich in wildlife and biodiversity many American city sites were prior to the establishment of the city itself. And so this is based in part on the work of a wonderful ecologist named uh, Eric Sanderson based at the Bronx Zoo and the Wildlife Conservation Society. Uh, some of your listeners may be um, familiar with his book, Manahata. But uh, in, that, in that book and in other research, um, he and others describe how New York City was really a hotspot of biological diversity prior to the establishment of the city itself. It had wildlife that overlapped from the north, from uh, environments that were typical of New England and areas that were further south in the mid-Atlantic and the southern regions. It was on the border of land and sea, saltwater and freshwater, uh, rich coastal environments. It was just a real hotspot of biological diversity. And the indigenous people who lived there, the Lenape people, uh, really benefited from this and had prosperous, uh, wealthy societies in that region. If you compare that to uh, the Yellowstone of today, the Yellowstone of today is much, much, much bigger than the area of Manhattan. Uh, we tend to think of Yellowstone as a hotspot of biological diversity, as a place where you can see a lot of wildlife, and it is, and it's incredibly important for that reason. But even though Yellowstone is much, much bigger than Manhattan, it has about the same number of native species, of native wildlife species, and even native plant species as Manhattan had uh, prior to European colonization. And so this just goes to show you that on the one hand, one of the reasons we value places like Yellowstone today so much is not just because of their inherent biological properties, but because they've been protected and we can see those, uh, we can see that diversity and richness uh, in real life today. But it also reminds us that in many cases in North America, we placed cities where they were in large part because of the resources they provided, because of the richness of the environment, because of the access to those places via water courses. And so if you add all this together, the result is that many of our biggest American cities were established in some of the richest biological areas on the continent. How much of that can be mapped on to places that were indigenous settlements that then white settlers then put cities down upon? Yes, yeah, Sasha, that's a really good point. And there's no place that um, sort of exemplifies that better than California. When the first Spanish colonists um, arrived here and established their missions in the late 18th century, um, they did so in areas that were also sites of the richest and most prosperous indigenous communities. And so these were places along the coast or in nearby coastal valleys, um, often in oak woodland or valley environments uh, near coastlines from San Diego all the way up to, to Sonoma. Um, the establishment of those missions in some cases led to um, population growth in those areas later in the establishment of cities. Most of California's biggest cities have missions somewhere near downtown. Uh, that were established before the city 
uh, obviously grew to its current size. But if you go back even further and ask why were these indigenous people, these diverse indigenous cultures there to begin with, uh, there were a number of reasons that were historical and geographic, but the primary ones had to do with the richness of those environments, with the avail availability of year-round water, with the availability of diverse uh, food resources from season to season, the availability of wild game and fish uh, and other kinds of resources. And so these were the primo spots where people had lived for centuries or millennia, had established prosperous indigenous communities, where the first European settlers established uh, their foothold on the western part of the continent and where some of our biggest cities later developed. And so you can trace this history all the way back in part, not in whole, but in part to some of these patterns of ecological richness and biological diversity that created a context on which those later histories would play out. So what then happened to that kind of biodiversity when these cities were initially established by settlers? Oh man, well, uh, I, I guess you can describe it as devastation. Uh, in and around some of the biggest cities in, in North America, very early on in their establishment, when they were still what we would think of as just villages or small towns, people fanned out into the countryside, colonists and early settlers. They harvested uh, resources um, at a level and in ways um, that quickly eclipsed uh, many of the indigenous hunting and gathering practices in those regions. Uh, and they also uh, cut down a, a lot of forests, uh, they modified shorelines, they dammed rivers, they did things that really hadn't happened on a large scale before, and they cleared out species that were either uh, inconvenient uh, or harmful to them or perceived as harmful in some way. And so the result was that in and around many American cities, and the timeline varies, of course, depending on whether what part of the continent you're in, um, but in and around many American cities, within the first hundred years, uh, of urban growth and development, uh, many of the, the native wildlife species had been really uh, decimated or even uh, annihilated, at least locally and regionally. And so as you get into the 19th century, what you see in many of these areas is uh, rich native ecosystems being replaced in urban areas uh, by uh, the establishment of or the importation of or the growth and populations of domesticated animals. And so this is a this is a um, urban reality that is sort of lost to us today. Uh, many people don't even really know it existed. But back in Victorian times, for example, in the late 19th uh, and even early 20th century, many cities had thousands or tens of thousands of horses, of pigs, uh, of cows even. Families kept their own cows uh, in downtown areas of many cities all the way up until the 1920s until refrigerated milk became widely available and delivered to people's homes. And so this uh, wild ecosystem was replaced in the 19th century and uh, 18th century by these domesticated animals uh, that in many cases roamed free in our urban areas. It wasn't until the 19, early 1900s, 1910s, 20s, uh, that just about all of that, those domesticated animals were moved out into the countryside. Well, tell us about that. What were the impetuses to then take out these domesticated animals, mainly out of the cities, although obviously some domesticated animals have continued to stay to this day? Yeah, of course. And we actually, I think, in some ways have more domesticated animals than we used to have a few decades ago in our cities. But back then, I think this was driven by a few things. One was that in, in Europe and uh, Northeastern uh, North America, um, there was great concern during the beginning, really in the early 19th century and, and increasing throughout the century about uh, the uh, spread of diseases uh, and other uh, negative health effects of having so many domesticated animals living in cities. And when I say other health effects, I mean hazards like fires, um, uh, you know, water pollution, all of these um, uh, consequences of having so many animals uh, in the city in that way. Now, of course, there were large numbers of people that depended on these animals for their survival. They made money from these animals by using them as work animals. They could slaughter them and eat them in, in, in times when they needed to. And there was a distinct class divide uh, in these debates throughout the 19th century. But 
as the Victorian era wore on, and as in the United States in particular, uh, soldiers came home from the Civil War battlefield having learned about the importance of hygiene, for example, and developing new agencies and institutions, public health agencies, for example, in cities, uh, there was a real push to try to clean up cities to make them healthier, to make them more conducive uh, for growing citizenry. Uh, and so there were a number of reforms that were put in place. Uh, the development of long-range water sources that would provide clean water for cities, the development of indoor plumbing systems and sanitation, uh, the imposition uh, of regular trash collection uh, funded by or administered by the city. And so all of these and other measures were taken during this time to try to clean up cities, to modernize them, and to turn them into places where people could, could live uh, safely. One of the consequences of this was that many animals that had previously been at home in the city, many domesticated animals, were moved out into the countryside. Well, I wonder if you could talk more about the kinds of visions of the city that were thrown up in reaction to not simply domesticated animals, but more broadly the unequal and unpleasant Victorian city that was seen as sort of full of squalor and filth. A number of different visions emerged in reaction to the Victorian city, which absolutely shaped the notions of nature in the city. But as you note, most of them left out, or all of them left out animals from their vision. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, I think that uh, one of the important things to, to really understand is that the, the idea for a modern city was inspired by a variety of different kinds of, of visions. Some of them were sort of utopian visions um, about what the optimal kind of environment was for human health and well-being and productivity. Uh, many of them were responses to, as you said, the perceived uh, uh, squalor, licentiousness, etc., of, of 19th century cities, but others were really responses to, among a privileged class, among a white privileged class, to the perceived dangers of having large numbers of uh, non-white people uh, and immigrants living in cities, living together uh, in ways that could potentially jeopardize what these elites viewed as, you know, the social order. And so cleaning up cities, moving animals out of them, providing public parks, providing indoor plumbing, uh, providing uh, lighting, uh, providing trash collection and clean water, all of these were seen as measures that contributed to the public health, but also instilled a, a certain kind of social order in which um, the, the historic elite could maintain its, its status. And so the status of animals is very much wrapped up with uh, ideas about race, about class, about gender, about country of origin and language, and all these other kinds of anxieties that were uh, familiar to the Victorian era and in some ways are, are familiar today. One of the interesting consequences of this is that by 1920, when most of these domesticated animals had been removed from cities, in the United States in particular, we entered into a time, a period of about maybe 30 to 40, 50 years, when there were fewer animals, probably, of any kind, living in American cities than had ever lived there before, or really that have probably ever lived there since. This was a period from around 1920 to 1950 or 60 or so. And really interestingly, this is the period when some of the greatest urban thinkers were writing about their visions for the, the modern and modernizing city. And so their visions really left out the idea of animals, in part because animals, first wild and then domesticated, had been removed, and no one really expected them ever to return in large numbers, which is one reason it was such a surprise when they did. And which is ironic because some of the visions that turned into reality actually fostered the return of animals to the cities. Can you talk about the thinking around green space and nature defined primarily as flora that emerged from this time, differing visions as you note, but with some commonalities. Yes, Asha, I think that at this point you're really getting to the, the core idea of the book. The book is called The Occidental Ecosystem for a reason. The reason is because over the course of several decades, 
beginning in the in the 19th century, for example, with the establishment of the first uh, urban parks, uh, like Central Park, places like that. And then throughout the the uh, the 20th century, uh, with a variety of other measures that were put in place to make cities cleaner and greener and more healthy for people, those measures, planting trees, establishing more parks, cleaning up waterways, uh, you know, doing all, all of these things that we think of as benefiting human health and well-being in urban areas, ended up creating the context in which some wild creatures could return. Some of them needed a little help and they were reintroduced to urban areas by people when the time came when the city could support them. An example of that is that gray squirrels disappeared from many urban areas in the uh, American uh, East Coast and Midwest uh, by the 19th century, 18th, 19th century. They were brought back and reintroduced to urban areas when those places had enough trees in parks and along streets and parkways to support them. Uh, but then there were other cases in which this uh, improving habitat for many humans, remembering that there's a tremendous amount of inequality associated with this, but the improving habitat in urban areas for many humans enabled some creatures that people never expected to return to come back. And so there was an accidental aspect to this. Measures taken in part to promote health and well-being among people ended up attracting and supporting other species, other wildlife species. I'm speaking with environmental historian and geographer Peter Alagona about his book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. UC Press is the publisher of the book. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, one animal that seems sort of stunning to imagine was at one point considered a threatened species in the U.S. in mid-century, more or less, was deer. Tell us about the changing fortunes of deer. This is a kind of an amazing story. You know, uh, deer, a uh, few species of deer common to the area that is now the contiguous United States were very, uh, very common uh, throughout, you know, a very long time through millennia of human history in these regions. And indigenous people use them for a variety of different purposes, for food, for clothing, for shelter, uh, for ritual purposes, etc. cetera. Uh, but in many areas, particularly in the American Northeast and then Midwest, the transformation of the environment, the cutting down of forests, the building of farms, and also unregulated hunting of deer. Really prior to the, to the late 19th century when laws were put in place in many areas to prevent this, uh, really led to a population collapse. And so by the early part of the 20th century, the population of white-tailed deer in particular, which are, are largely native to North America, east of the Rockies, had had declined by something like 99%. Um, just a tremendous population collapse from what are estimated to have been historical uh, levels. A lot of people were concerned about this for, for a number of different reasons, ecological reasons, food security reasons, uh, recreational reasons uh, related to hunting. And so there were a number of measures put in place largely at the state level in various states to try to bring uh, white-tailed deer back. By the time that Disney hit the theaters uh, in the early 1940s, white-tailed deer were already coming back sort of with, with a vengeance, although the full, uh, <laughs> the full result of that wasn't really understood until you know, a few decades later. But the population bounced back to, to what is believed to have been uh, pre-European levels, uh, probably by the 1970s and 80s. And since then, there have been a number of population declines and then, and then rebounds in what is a, a pretty variable population structure for that, that species. But I think one of the interesting points here is that Disney with Bambi in 1942 came along at a time when deer were coming back, for sure. That wasn't really part of Disney's um, uh, viewpoint, though, what Disney was was doing was using the story of white-tailed deer in part to talk about, well, first of all, the Second World War, which was going on at the time, uh, to instill traditional notions of the nuclear family, uh, and to warn people against the depredations 
uh, of humankind, not only on other species, but on, on one another, on each other um, in the context of World War II. And so Bambi is this groundbreaking movie with groundbreaking animation, uh, uh, you know, kind of compelling and memorable storyline, um, these amazing characters that sets the stage for so many other uh, wildlife-based kind of entertainment um, uh, hits in, you know, in the years that would follow. Uh, but Bambi is at a very particular moment. One of the things that I mentioned in the book about Bambi is that the most famous line in the book happens when the, the great prince of the forest, Bambi's father, says, you know, it is man, we must go deep into the forest. Well, if you look at the cast of Bambi, you know, you've got, you got a skunk, you got some deer, you got an owl, um, you got creatures like that. Those are the exact animals that within the next few decades after Bambi comes out end up being many of the first creatures that people start seeing in and around urban areas uh, as, as part of this um, vanguard uh, of urban wildlife coming back in the 1970s and 80s. And so in some ways, what the cast of Bambi actually did was exactly opposite what, of what the great prince of the forest uh, advised. They didn't go deeper into the forest. What many of them did is they went straight to the city. The story that you're telling, this thread that runs through of the changing city in the United States and the way that animal life in cities changed in response often to these changes led to all sorts of different outcomes. And so one part of that is the rise of suburbs, which you note was not an inevitable phenomenon. Yeah, I think it's really important uh, to define what we what we even mean by a city. And I think if you're an ecologist, for example, and you're interested in doing statistics, you have to have a clear definition of what a city is, something that you can draw lines around on a map. For someone like me, a historian, um, I think it's important to remember that definitions of what a city is have themselves changed over time, for example, through definitions in the U.S. Census uh, that provide a lot of the statistics that we have to understand change. Over the course of the 20th century, what happened uh, in the United States was that the dominant urban form went from a dense uh, clustered urban form to a much more sprawling suburbanized form. And most people who live in urban areas today actually live in places that we would think of as suburbs. You know, California is the most urban state in the United States. About 95% of Californians live in urban areas. That's the greatest percentage of any state, uh, although there are some others like Nevada that are pretty close. Uh, but if you think of where most Californians live, uh, they don't live in high-rise buildings in downtown San Francisco. They live in dense uh, suburbs that uh, function uh, as urban areas in every way except that kind of traditional, having that traditional downtown core. And so this change, this transformation from clustered dense areas to more sprawling areas had a few effects. The first was that they gobbled up farmlands, in particular in near cities. Farmlands had been located, uh, particularly farmlands that grew valuable crops that were heavy to transport, uh, like fresh vegetables and fruits, were often located close to cities so they could serve the urban populace. Those areas disappeared first, and then later on, uh, we started to see more uh, habitat loss in natural areas. But then later on, as you move into the 80s and 90s and 2000s, those processes continue for sure. You continue to see a lot of habitat loss on the urban fringe. But what you also see is suburbs that were once among the kind of bleakest ecological environments on the planet, really, uh, true monocultures, monocultures of humans and, and turf grass, really, um, later become leafier, become cleaner, become greener. People are planting trees. Um, establishing uh, more parks, cleaning up denuded areas. And so suburbs in some areas start to take different forms where they become uh, more conducive to some creatures that might not have lived there otherwise. It's difficult to imagine a deer, for example, uh, wandering around a 1950s Lakewood suburb, but it's quite easy to imagine deer wandering around many suburbs of Los Angeles today uh, that have large areas of lush ornamental vegetation and, and uh, leafy, uh, leafy groves in which to hide uh, during the day. And so these transformations are part of the evolution of the urban environment and a big part of the story of urban wildlife. And yet 
you know that it's a story that really has been told, that in many ways, ecologists, at least for decades, were so focused on wildlife outside of cities in, you know, supposedly natural areas, that the presumed artificial landscape of the city was not worthy of study. How has that shifted now as these kind of long historical changes have taken place over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st? So this is a really important part of the story. And in some ways, it's really more of a, of a history of science and scientific thought. And actually, one of the things that I say at the beginning of the story is that in some ways, I unknowingly replicated this in my own journey, my own personal journey, my own career. I started out studying um, endangered species, uh, science, policy, uh, and conservation. And as a result, I was spending almost all of my time writing and thinking about creatures that by definition, because they're endangered, most people never see, right? And so really, it wasn't a story about wildlife. It was a story about people talking and thinking and fighting about wildlife. Fast forward a little bit and into the early 2000s and mid 2000s, as more and more scholarship started to emerge, as more and more research started to emerge about wildlife and urban places, as more and more journalists started to key into this and you could read the newspaper and it seemed like every week there was a new species in a new city uh, that had been seen. Just uh, last week, there was a report of a rare snowy uh, owl in Orange County, uh, an Orange County suburb. I mean, this is just an example uh, of this kind of thing. It woke me up to the fact that urban areas actually had a lot to, to understand, uh, a lot of richness, and maybe even some things to think about, about conserving. And so in my personal journey with that, I in some ways replicated what ecologists have been doing for the previous many decades. Prior to 2000, there were very few ecologists who were interested in working in urban areas. You didn't become an ecologist to work in LA, you became an ecologist to work in Yellowstone. Only after 2000 did more and more people start to get really interested in this, to study urban areas as, as fascinating and interesting on their own, and as also perhaps providing clues into more fundamental questions in ecology and in particular in evolutionary biology. To what degree is that blind spot on the part of ecologists about wildlife in the cities connected to the fact that obviously many species of animals have been displaced in cities and others may have flourished, but potentially at the expense of all of that biodiversity? So you're making a really important point here, Sasha, and I think that the key thing to understand is that for most of the history of conservation, and even now, uh, ecologists and conservationists really looked at cities as agents of destruction. And one of the key words that they've often used is, and this is a little bit of a mouthful, but is homogenization, biological homogenization. And the idea there is that cities, wherever they exist around the world, tend to create certain kinds of conditions that favor particular kinds of species. The kinds of species that they favor tend to be generalists. Generalist is uh, an animal uh, that can live under a wide variety of different circumstances and tap uh, a diversity of resources in different kinds of environments. So it's not limited to a particular environment. Species that are limited to particular environments don't tend to do well in cities because cities are new and they tend to pose challenges that those species aren't well adapted to. But generalists, crows, pigeons, some species of rodents, uh, do tend to do well in cities and they appear in cities uh, throughout the world. And so that was the notion of homogenization and the idea that cities, by gobbling up habitats, by eliminating, eliminating native species and replicating the same environments over and over again, uh, tend to be agents of biodiversity loss. I think that that is um, true. There's a lot of evidence to support that. It happens in a variety of different ways and we shouldn't discount it. However, it is also true that in recent years, uh, research has shown that urban environments and suburban environments are more diverse 
biologically than was previously believed, that some of the wildlife species that inhabit them are actually uh, species that are not generalists, that are more specialists, but happen to have some skills that enable them to thrive in an urban environment. There are many uh, endangered species that live within urban regions um, that uh, need to be conserved. And there are some cases in which uh, species that are endangered are doing well in urban areas, but doing poorly in their quote unquote native or natural habitats. And so understanding these, um, these various dynamics and trends, although they're complicated, is really important to understanding the complicated ways in which cities not just destroy, but transform environments, creating some winners uh, and, some, and some losers as well. And connected to that, you write in the accidental ecosystem that we should be a bit wary of the terms native and non-native, which are sort of staples of understanding ecosystems and the displacement of plants or animals that had been there initially um, and then exotic species brought in. Why should we be a little more wary of the term of native and non-native as one being good and the other being necessarily bad? So, you know, if you think about the terms native and non-native, and there are other terms that go along with that, like exotic, for example, uh, you know, in their most simple form, uh, these terms are really just meant to describe uh, the a geographic origin of a species, uh, the environment in which um, it originated evolutionarily and in which it finds its, its native or natural habitat. But over time, these terms have been deployed in a variety of ways that has often crossed the line uh, with different kinds of political speech uh, that relate to human beings. And so in many cases, this is not an isolated thing. Uh, environmentalists have used terms like native uh, and exotic about species, wildlife and plant species, uh, but they're also talking about, about human beings. And so there's famous, uh, famous examples like the, the uh, conservationist slash eugenicist uh, and racist uh, Madison Grant, who is famous in part for helping to conserve California's redwoods and also famous in part for writing a book that was an inspiration uh, to Adolf Hitler. Uh, and so that's an extreme uh, example, of course, but it, it hints at some of the ways in which these terms can be very slippery uh, when they move between um, uh, humans and other species. What I'm trying to suggest in the book is that maybe a better way to think about it, at least in urban spaces, where we have species from all across the world uh, living together in, in relatively small environments, you know, urban areas only encompass about 3% of the Earth's ice-free land surface at this point, um, even though they exert a much greater ecological influence. But what I suggest is that we should not judge them based on their place of origin. What we should judge them on is based on what they bring to the community, right? Um, if a species is spreading like wildfire and decimating native creatures and creating monocultures of toxic soil, then we should think about that as probably something we don't want, right? On the other hand, if a species uh, comes to an urban area or is introduced to an urban area, does relatively little harm and brings something of value in return that people find that enriches their lives, and I can think of, for example, species of parrots that have been introduced to American cities that do that kind of thing that people find as being enjoyable and inspiring. They don't do a lot of harm. They don't make it outside of urban environments because their food is generally kind of horticultural plants. Um, you know, then, then I think that we, we shouldn't judge them based on where they, where they came from. And I think that that's uh, a better way to, to understand, uh, you know, and to address the question of, of, of who belongs and to open that up a bit more. Environmental historian and geographer Peter Alagona is my guest. Today we're talking about the accidental ecosystem, people and wildlife in American cities. You can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. Peter Alagona is professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Barbara. So we spoke earlier of the blind spot that many scientists and ecologists had about wildlife in cities. But one exception to that has been around birds, that 
people watch birds and noted birds birds were on the radar of ecologists in cities in a way they weren't for many other animals. What can we say and generalize about birds in cities? Birds are a a fantastic and fascinating example and kind of counterpoint. As you said, for many kinds of creatures that live in urban areas, we lack the deep historical uh, data to really do sophisticated statistical analyses of their presence and even their presence and absence, but also their population trends over time. So we just don't know that much about how much they've increased, um, where they arrived when, uh, and how they've done uh, in various areas. We're learning more about that now as people track them more, but we we lack the the, uh, decades old data sets that many of us would like to, to better understand that. The exception to this case, of course, is with birds. People have been uh, bird watching, naturalists have been bird watching in urban areas for a very long time, uh, for centuries actually. Uh, Beginning um, around 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, uh, the first Audubon Christmas uh, bird count was established. That was really, I'd say the earliest and uh, in in many ways the most um, effective uh, citizen science project ever undertaken. By the way, citizen science, people participating and contributing to science who aren't uh, professional scientists. Nowadays, we often uh, refer to that as community science uh, to be more inclusive. Uh, But folks have been contributing to that uh, for 100 years and building up this rich database uh, of of bird observations uh, in urban areas from New York to San Francisco uh, and everywhere in between, uh, including in, in many other parts of the world. I think one of the reasons that that's the case is that because birds, many birds are so mobile, uh, they're not locked to the ground like the rest of us are. They pass through cities in ways that um, uh, show their diversity and that people can access that and see that very close to their their homes. Uh, Birds are are beautiful. I think the transition, the technological transition from studying birds by shooting them and then looking at them to studying them by looking at them through binoculars uh, was incredibly important in opening this up to a broader uh, swath of people. Uh, although many people who who out, go out there and bird watch still feel like they're not they're not included. Um, I think that that's a really important thing to understand in some natural areas that some people feel excluded uh, from being in those areas and doing things that that others feel perfectly comfortable doing. Uh, but but the result is that we know more about birds than we do about just about any other species in urban areas. I think one of the most fascinating results of that is that in many urban spaces, the number of species of birds has not changed much over time. So they got about the same total number of species. The particular species that are showing up though, in some cases are different than birds that showed up earlier. This is in part because of changes in their populations, changes in the landscape, climate changes, these sorts of things. Uh, And also the total number of birds has decreased in many areas. There was a meta level study that was uh, put out a couple years ago that suggested that North America has lost about 30% of its birds. That's individual birds, not bird species. Uh, But this suggests that even though the total number of species may be remaining constant in many urban areas, uh, the particular species you might see and the total number of birds has been declining Uh, over time due to these various factors. Well, while many listeners would celebrate the recognition that cities are full of wildlife, there's definitely animals that are much less welcome and controversial, like coyotes and mountain lions. Can you talk about the fall and rise of those animals and their implications for the larger question which sort of looms over this history, which is of the relationship between humans and non-human nature. I think that even though uh, some of the biggest animals get the most attention, deer, black bear, uh, mountain lions, coyotes, actually, if you look at the statistics that have been gathered on this, most of the quote-unquote conflicts it's a kind of a problematic term, but we don't really have a better one uh, currently in the literature uh, to describe this. Most of the conflicts that occur um, in, in urban areas with wildlife 
have to do with smaller animals. They're, you know, they're rodents, um, including rats and, and mice, but also um, you have uh, gophers, animals like that, um, raccoons, uh, certainly as well, skunks. Uh, when I talk about my book with a lot of audiences, I go through this whole history. I talk about all these different creatures and then someone raises their hand and asks me, how do they get rid of the skunks in their yard? And so this is something that's very common. Uh, I, don't, I don't love skunks around my house, even though I've got a bunch of them around here as well. Um, so it's important to just to just to remember that, I think. Um, I, I think that uh, one piece of wisdom that we have learned, or some of us have learned, um, although many unfortunately haven't uh, over time, is that killing individual animals is rarely a solution to a problem. Now, there may be in cases, for example, where you have a sick animal, uh, that's kind of, you know, desperate, um, like P22 became toward the very end of his life weeks ago, um, and starting to act out of character. That might be an animal that would need to be taken out of the population. That is certainly the case. Uh, but in general, calling animals, killing individual animals just kicks the can down the road. Other creatures come in and those creatures that come in may actually be younger, less experienced. The social structure may be disrupted and you may have even more problems down the line. Uh, by by trying to solve uh, a short-term short-term problem like that and so the best way to to deal with wildlife uh, in urban areas whether they're mountain lions or whether they're they're gophers is to try to manage habitats in ways that encourage the kinds of creatures you do want that people do want in a community and discourage the kinds that they don't now, this in urban areas often happens at the level of the, the individual, like an individual homeowner or something like that. We're not really at a point yet where we're having a focused discussion at the community level about the kinds of ecosystem we, ecosystems we want and the kinds of creatures we want to surround ourselves with. But I think that, that we should. Let me just give you an example. So let's say that you want fewer, fewer rats around your house. Uh, well, you can achieve that in a few ways. You can put out traps and that might work a little bit. Um, hopefully they're, they're humane traps that are set properly uh, and cause the least amount of suffering. Uh, you could put out poisons, which is rarely, if ever, a good idea, although it's done very frequently, including um, on my university campus um, for reasons that escape me, to be honest. Um, but then we can talk about other ways of doing this, like reducing their access to human-provided food or um, creating space for the predators that hunt them, whether those predators are foxes, whether they're bobcats, or whether they're owls that people love to have in, uh, in urban environments and that consume a lot of those different kinds of animals. And there are ways to encourage those kinds of creatures to come in uh, and to take their place in the ecosystem in a way that, that rebalances things uh, a little bit in, in a way that, that more people might appreciate. The bigger animals, like mountain lions and coyotes, um, attract a lot of attention. Uh, they can be a little scary. They can be inspiring. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not nearly as much of an issue for most people in their communities as are the smaller ones that we see on a more daily basis. I'd like to ask you about one of the smaller ones, bats, which, of course, have gotten a very bad reputation recently and historically as the spreaders of disease. And of course, around the world, they are endangered. Can you remind us maybe first off of the important role that bats play within ecosystems and then the situation of bats in cities? Bats are, are some of the most amazing creatures uh, on the planet. Um, there are about a thousand species of bats uh, worldwide. They vary tremendously in size and habit and ecosystem. Um, but, but some of them um, are the only mammals capable of, of true flight, and one of the few, uh, along with, for example, uh, dolphins, um, that uh, navigate uh, their environment by echolocation. This, these are some species of bats. And uh, the, the fascinating thing about, about that for humans, well, there's a lot of fascinating things about that, but the fascinating thing about this for, for, for us and for the way we think about our relations to them and disease in particular is that because bats are, are mammals, they're capable of true flight, the only mammals capable of true flight, they've uh, adapted a variety of um, physiological 
traits and processes that enable them to fly without overheating, basically. Flight burns a lot of energy and it generates a lot of heat. And so what do bats do? They do all kinds of things. First of all, they tend to come out at night, which means it's dark, which means they need a way to navigate, and echolocation is one solution to that. They tend to uh, uh, hide during the day in cool places, like, like caves. But when they do that, they cluster together in large groups uh, where it's easy to pass on germs. They also cool themselves by panting, by licking themselves, by licking each other. And so, you know, in some ways, they're, they're really good at, at passing along uh, germs, including viruses, in part because of the ecological roles they play in the adaptations uh, they have. Interestingly, it seems that some bats uh, are capable of uh, essentially uh, maintaining a level of fever, a high body temperature that would kind of roast uh, most other mammals by inflammation. Uh, but they're capable of doing it because they have adaptations that enable them not to damage their cells through those inflammatory processes. What this means is that they can harbor a large number of, of germs that might negatively affect other mammals if passed on, including humans. Now, this is one of the reasons, in addition to superstition and vampires and things like this, that bats get, have gotten a bad reputation. Uh, but I'll just point out that in most situations throughout history, bats have been very, very unlikely to pass on their germs to people. They tend to do it when people are messing with them, they're harvesting them, they're harvesting their guano, or they're disrupting their habitats, bringing humans and bats into closer uh, contact. Another thing to remember is that bats do a tremendous amount of service for us. By consuming, uh, which the insectivorous bats do, enormous numbers of mosquitoes, for example, they actually reduce the prevalence and risk of disease in many environments. And so I know that, you know, in the wake of the COVID uh, pandemic, um, that people got a lot of uh, kind of bad uh, vibes from bats, they were concerned about bats, that there were episodes of people trying to cull bats. But overall, I think that uh, most people realize that even though bats may be special harbors um, uh, or reservoirs uh, of some kinds of diseases that could potentially affect people, that overall they provide us with a tremendous amount of benefits and they're just fascinating uh, and unique species that I think we should really appreciate and try to preserve. What about reptiles? Depending on what part of the country you live in, you may live close to alligators or snakes. How do you see the rise and fall and rise, I guess, of reptiles in cities? And, and how do you think we should come to terms with animals that some people also have very strong reactions to? People bring a lot of uh, ideas to the animals that they interact with. I think one of the most important things that we learn from the, the scholarship on animal studies is that when people look at animals, they're often looking at themselves. Uh, animals hold up a mirror to us and we project onto them. And so ideas about animals like snakes or bats uh, profoundly affect uh, the way that we relate to them. In many urban areas, most reptiles don't do all that well. Uh, snakes and tortoises and others tend to get caught on highways uh, when they're warming up on a, on a cool day. Uh, that's a really dangerous place for them. People kill snakes all the time. Same with lizards. Uh, but some reptiles do do okay in urban environments. Let me end by asking you about the future. You've been describing the changing fortunes of animals in cities. Of course, all ecosystems are being affected worldwide by climate change. How do you anticipate the wildlife that you've been describing that has been flourishing in cities may fare in hotter cities and more erratic climates? It's a really crucial point and one that looms in the background of, or in some cases, the foreground of all of these conversations. I think that, you know, there there are a variety of potential um, uh, consequences to this and, and possibilities. One important thing to note is that one of the things that, that urbanization does is it tends to chop up habitats. We call that fragmentation in conservation and ecology. And so if you build a freeway, 
and a species can't get across, they can't go from one side to the other, that's habitat fragmentation. The more that we ha fragment habitats, the more likely it is that species will not be able to migrate to new areas to adjust to uh, ecological changes like climate change. That's something really important to remember. In urban areas, I think that uh, you know the climate itself is actually uh, fairly moderate in urban areas. Urban areas tend to have more water, uh, cooling water in the summertime uh, in many places. They tend to um, have an urban heat island effect uh, in, in the wintertime, and uh, they tend to have a little bit more precipitation because water forms around dust droplets that are ejected into the air uh, compared to, to uh, other rural areas. And so in some ways, in some places, urban areas actually act like, like oases. Uh, there's a potential danger to that. So the possibility, for example, that droughts in wildland areas could result in some animals like black bears coming down and foraging more frequently in urban areas. That's a possibility and one that um, we need to, to uh, watch and be concerned about. Um, but, but cities have a variety of, of different kinds of effects. I think that the key thing to recognize is that our cities emerge today because of a set of choices that people made in the past. Those choices had unintended consequences for sure, but they were choices nonetheless. We can make choices today. We can make choices that reduce habitat fragmentation, that promote connectivity, that provide species with green space uh, in, which to, uh, in which to procreate, in which to move uh, from patches of natural habitat to, to another. Um, and we can design urban areas that promote health and well-being for both people and for wildlife in the region. We just really haven't gotten to the point yet where as communities, we're coming together and having a serious conversation about what kinds of urban ecosystems we want to live in. I think that the, that the key point that I'm trying to make with this book is that although right now we have something like an accidental ecosystem, cities full of wildlife that were never really intended to be that way, we have an opportunity in the future and a lot of people are working really hard to make this happen. We have an opportunity to craft more intentional, less accidental, more intentional urban ecosystems, ecosystems that promote coexistence with people and wildlife and that promote thriving for all. That's what I'm trying to get out with the book and that's the thing that I hope that folks remember. Well, on that somewhat hopeful note, thank you so much. Thank you, Sasha. I've been speaking with Pete Alagona, Professor of Environmental Studies at UC Santa Barbara. We've been discussing his book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities, that's published by UC Press. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.